I watched my friend go off to war. What do they keep fighting for? So my child and I came to this place to meet him, eye to eye and face to face. He made my daughter laugh. Then we embraced. We never knew what friends we had until we came to Leningrad. Billy Joel's Leningrad depicts the irony of war and the nuclear arms race when the American Billy Joel travels to Leningrad and becomes best friends with a man who grew up in the Soviet Union. The irony of the song Leningrad begs the question, how do we get from a people who hold no grudges to people who wage war and now find themselves on opposite sides? of conflict that could lead to war. We here at Solutions to Violence have asked Dr. Anatole Levin, author of the book Ukraine and Russia, A Paternal Rivalry, to help us answer that question. Hi, folks. Welcome to Solutions to Violence. You're listening to WFMP FM 106.5 Radio. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your host for Solutions to Violence program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. Solutions to Violence is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Dr. Anatole Levin is a senior research fellow at Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington, D.C. He was professor at Georgetown University in Qatar from 2014 to 2021. He is a member of the academic board of the Valde Discussion Club in, in Russia. He also served on the advisory committee of the South Asia Department of British Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He also holds a BA and PhD from Cambridge University. His latest book, Climate Change and the Nation State, was published in paperback in 2021 by the Oxford University Press. From 1986 to 1998, Anatole Levin worked as a British journalist in South Asia, former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and is author of several books on Russia and its neighbor, including Ukraine and Russia, a fraternal rivalry. His book, Pakistan, a Hard Country, is on required being list for American and British diplomats serving in Pakistan. Dr. Anatole Levin, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Hello. Dr. Levin, in late 2021, following the public alarm and media attention focused around the United States military withdrawal from Afghanistan, you wrote an opinion piece for the Nation magazine titled Ukraine, the most dangerous problem in the world. You suggested then there was already a solution to this danger we are noticing, and so few then were aware that it was boiling into the wings of Europe. But we'd like you to share your solution to what you think the solution is uh, with our listeners. But but first, share with us how your interests have shaped your professional focus on Russia and Europe and as a, a senior research fellow at Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Well, I was trained as a historian many, many years ago now. So I suppose I've, I've always had a tendency to see things through a historical prism. And from that point of view, uh, you know, m- many of the things that people today often see in very black and white ideological forms, I suppose... I try to imagine what historians in future will think of them. And I always think, to judge by the way that we regard the past, they probably will not see things as quite so clear-cut and black and white. And they will find that on many things we have been extremely um, arrogant and and overambitious. But in addition, uh, as you said in your introduction, I spent seven years, before that I spent several years in um, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then I spent seven years in the former Soviet Union as a British journalist while it was collapsing uh, in the early 90s and then after its collapse. And so I know a great deal. Uh, I was there when uh, several of these conflicts started, and I know that it is a great deal more complicated than the picture that, unfortunately, Western governments and much of the Western media are giving today. And also, not always, but sometimes there are uh, solutions, sometimes very obvious solutions that we are not adopting. And since I have this this knowledge and this background, I feel a, a responsibility to try to pass it on. Well, before we get to the current crisis with Russia and Ukraine, let, let's explore some of the history concerning the Soviet Union, Ukraine, and, and NATO. NATO is a military alliance of U.S. and Eastern European nations that originally organized to protect the United States' interests and, and uh, its European allies against invasion or breach of sovereignty from the former Soviet Union. 
However, the Soviet Union collapsed in December of 1991. You, you referred to that. And NATO not only survived, it actually expanded. You worked as a British journalist in South Asia and, and the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. How do you view that sequence of events? Well, at the time, quite a lot of people felt, certainly the Russians felt, that NATO should have disappeared since its purpose had gone, you know, with the disappearance of the, of the Soviet communist threat to Europe. And uh, I think that four immensely powerful forces came together to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, by the way, President Gorbachev of the Soviet Union was verbally promised uh, by the then US Secretary of State James Baker that uh, NATO would not expand, not one inch was the phrase, uh, if, um, you know, if the Soviet Union permitted the reunification of Germany. Of course, that was only a verbal promise. Gorbachev never got it in writing. And of course, that promise was not kept. The reasons why it was not kept, well, firstly, I think sheer inertia. Um, an institution like NATO, which has been around for by then um, 40 years, has generated immense you know, interests uh, in keeping it going. NATO has been probably the biggest military bureaucratic employer, or at least an ideal bureau military bureaucratic employer, uh, because of course every job has to be duplicated by the number of members it has. You know, it's a, it's, it's a military bureaucrat's dream. And so there's tremendous you know, institutional pressure for NATO to continue. Then there is the role of NATO as uh, what um, George Orwell unkindly said about England in his novel 1984, Airstrip One. American bases in Europe are very important to the projection of American power in the Middle East and Eurasia. And of course, America could make bilateral deals with European countries to keep those bases, but that would be politically more sensitive. It's much easier for America to operate on the premise that this is you know, an alliance of all the Western countries dedicated to common security. So there was American strategic interest. The third reason was that the East European countries themselves, or at least governments, not necessarily always majorities of their populations, but certainly governments and elites, wanted NATO membership, either because they were still afraid that Russia might come back and dominate them, or just as a badge of belonging to the West, you know, along with, with membership of the European Union. Because since the 90s, there has grown up this, um, this real tendency to talk as if, you know, if you're not in NATO and the European Union, you are in some sense not really European. You're still on the outside. And that is something to which, of course, people in Eastern Europe emerging from communist rule felt acutely sensitive. But finally, and that's still very evident today, there is the fact that the original members of NATO were still you know, the biggest ones apart from, um, apart from the United States. Germany, France, Italy are terrified of being left on their own in Europe. They have no confidence in their ability or willingness or willingness of their populations to defend themselves or to maintain security on the continent. Now, partly, as many Americans quite rightly point out, that is so that they can spend much less on defence than United States taxpayers uh, have to spend. Uh, but it, and it's partly, of course, fear of Russia, but it's also because of the dreadful failure of the, um, the Europeans when the Yugoslav civil wars, with all their atrocities, broke out in, in the early 90s. And at the start, there were these grandiloquent declarations, like one EU official, I think, said, this is the hour of Europe, we are going to sort this out. Well, of course, they didn't sort it out. And you had shameful episodes, you know, like Dutch troops standing by while a whole population was massacred. And that has left the, the Europeans with a deep sense that, that Amer if NATO ceases to exist and the Americans pull out of Europe, that the continent will fall into chaos again. And they will be quite unable, and as I say, their populations will be unwilling to, um, to maintain their own security. So those four elements, by the way, perhaps one should add a fifth, the East European countries in several cases had very powerful ethnic lobbies in America, which also brought pressure to bear on the Clinton administration uh, to expand NATO to their countries. And against that, uh, you really had only, well, Russia, who at that point nobody was listening to. Um, Russia was so weak and chaotic and impoverished. And some prestigious individuals in the West, George Kennan, probably the greatest diplomat in Russia that America has ever had, and of course the architect of the containment policy in, uh, in the late 1940s, the containment of the Soviet Union. Kennan warned vehemently 
against expanding NATO, warning precisely that it would throw away the gains of victory in the Cold War and lead ultimately to conflict with Russia. And then there were some others, high-level people like Kissinger at the time, though he pretended to change his mind since, and then much lower-level people like me. But we were really powerless individuals. And one reason for that is uh, that, as we've seen many times, when both political parties in Washington decide on a policy, on a foreign policy, then nobody in the world of journalism who you know, wants access and approval, and nobody in the world of think tanks who is dreaming of you know, one day becoming the deputy assistant, assistant deputy to something or other, is going to say a word against it because it would wreck their careers. So yes, I mean, the, the argument for NATO expansion basically went through without serious public debate. So let's talk a little more about and you kind of mentioned this, Russia's wanting to join NATO. So Andrei Rasmussen, the, the former Danish prime minister, who served as NATO secretary general from 2009 to 2014, recognized that Putin wanted to join NATO, wanted Russia to join NATO, but that never happened. Why was that? Why was the Russian never allowed to join NATO, become a partner? Well, I mean, it would have been vetoed by a whole range of countries with ancestral fears of of Russia, the Poles, the Balts. In addition, of course, since the end of the Cold War, not before, you know, NATO has declared itself to be, you know, an alliance of democratic states. Funnily enough, during the Cold War, you know, when Turkey had its periods of military dictatorship, or Greece, or Portugal, which had dictatorship for the first two and a half decades of the Cold War. Funnily enough, that never applied in those days. But since the end of the Cold War, you have to be a full democracy. Russia obviously isn't. But also, I have to say, I don't think that it was ever realistic. At least it w- we see now that since the end of the Cold War, Turkey has really become a largely detached member of NATO. NATO membership has become largely theoretical because Turkey is no longer willing simply to play the role of a security client or dependency of the United States, feeling that actually Turkey doesn't get anything out of that anymore. And America does not help Turkey as far as Turkey's you know, vital security concerns, which are above all about Kurdish separatism, are concerned. And it was never likely that NATO was going to help Russia to secure its basic interests in, as regards the, the Caucasus or Central Asia. Nor, of course, was NATO ever going to help secure Russia against China. For, for Russia to have joined NATO would have implied today siding with America against China. Well, you know, that's easy <laughs> to say you're doing if you're Denmark, and Denmark is not in any danger of being attacked or invaded by China. Not quite so easy if you are Russia with a border with China thousands of miles long in Siberia, and an old history of territorial disputes with China. So, what Putin's expressed desire indicated uh, was that uh, you know Russia resented bitterly and also regarded you know as a serious threat to its interests the fact that NATO and the West had constructed a, a security architecture in Europe which completely and explicitly excluded Russia. The phrase Europe whole and free was a mortal insult to Russians since it implied they were not Europeans. And the NATO-Russia Joint Council, which Russia thought was going to be a place where, you know, Russia could raise its concerns and then there would be a free discussion, uh, you know, um, with Russia and the NATO members where they would on some issues, there would be NATO members who would side with them. What always happened was that all the members of NATO got together, agreed on a, a position, and then presented it to Russia as a fait accompli, and any Russian protests were brushed aside. And this happened even when there were cases like the American uh, abandonment of the anti-ballistic missile treaty under Bush, or, of course, the American abandonment of the nuclear deal with Iran under Trump, where actually uh, a majority of NATO members agreed with the Russian position. But they would never, ever side with, Ru- with Russia against America. And you know, even if NATO membership had been possible, which I don't think it ever was, Russia was never going to accept that kind of subordinate position to the United States. Um, it's just not psychologically or indeed strategically, as I say, possible for Russia. You know, <laughs> Rasmussen was talking as a Dane. Russia is not Denmark and never will be. So Putin and, uh, and Russia political leadership are opposed to NATO expansion, which includes opposing any NATO plan that would include Ukraine. Why Ukraine? Well, Russia uh, accustomed itself 
unwillingly, but you know, in the end, happily enough, to NATO membership for Eastern Europe, the Poles, the Romanians, and even the Baltic states. That was more difficult because you know, it wasn't much closer. But Ukraine is a different matter, like Georgia, for a variety of reasons. One is it is Russia's biggest neighbour by far. You know, as has often been said, it is, you know, from a strategic point of view, exactly as if Mexico were to join an alliance with China. Uh, you know, we all know what would happen. America would go crazy. You know, there would be ruthless uh, attempts to get that reversed. If not full-scale invasion, certainly, you know, ruthless um, subversion, attempts to create civil war, blockade perhaps, as with Cuba. So there's that. There is uh, the fact that, as with Georgia, Ukraine has territorial disputes with Russia. The Crimea, in particular, was only transferred to Ukraine under Soviet rule by Soviet fiat from Russia in 1955. And then, of course, there's the Donbass dispute, where pro-Russian separatists revolted with Russian help in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Clearly, um, NATO membership for Ukraine implies NATO support for Ukraine in those cases. And in particular, Crimea uh, includes the, the port city of Sevastopol, which is Russia's well, only real naval base on the Black Sea, and one of its most important bases anywhere, and also the site of three famous sieges in in Russian history. And obviously, if Ukraine joined NATO, then sooner or later, the Russians would be expelled from Sevastopol. And at least before 2014, that's why one key reason why the Russians annexed Crimea in, uh, after the Ukrainian revolution of 2014. Well, you know, that is pretty much as if uh, you were asking uh, America, uh, however democratically, uh, to give up simultaneously Pearl Harbor, Guam, and the Alamo. Not a likely proposition, I think. But finally, and this is different, you know, on on top of all the strategic reasons, you know, Ukraine and Russia have a very complex historical relationship. The Russian state originated in what is now Ukraine. What is now Ukraine fell partly under Polish, Lithuanian, partly under Turkish rule thereafter. The center of the Russian state migrated north to Moscow. The Ukrainians developed as a separate people with a language, you know, East Slavic language related to Russian, but clearly different from it. And many Ukrainians uh, developed an identity opposed to that of Russia, but many um, kept a Ukrainian identity, but um, a Ukrainian identity which really you know, regarded Russia as a, a form of elder brother nation. And a, a row of great Russian novelists, um, artists, filmmakers from Hohol or Gogol on were Ukrainians, considered themselves Ukrainians, came from Ukraine, but did their work in Russian and consider themselves also part of Russian culture. And the the Russians fear that if um, Ukraine, with Western protection, does what the Balts did and basically eliminates the Russian language from public life and culture in Ukraine, this will be a terrible blow to the wider uh, role of Russian language and culture in, in the world. So you have, you know, a combination of very powerful factors behind this determination, not not just, uh, this is not, you know, it's not just Putin, this is the, this is the Russian establishment backed by, a, you know, a very large part of the Russian people, this mm-hmm. determination to prevent Ukraine from joining an anti-Russian Western alliance. NATO expansion, then it's it's refusal to allow Russia to join the alliance, uh, nuclear missiles in NATO countries, the near Soviet border, in addition to the U.S. military bases in Japan, Philippines, Indonesia, Kuwait, Iraq, Syria, Niger, all explains why Putin and you say the perhaps the administrative establishment and people view NATO as a threat. And now the Alliance wants to expand further by allowing Ukraine to join NATO. It seems that there's room for compromise and negotiation, but Biden refuses to compromise on issues of military installation pullback, nuclear missile pullback, or NATO membership compromise. If the U.S. refuses to allow Ukraine to join NATO at the present time, what security issues will that refusal cause for the U.S. and, and the the NATO allies? What what are the vital intent of NATO allies and needed to be considered? Well, the funny thing is, none whatsoever, because uh, apart from anything else, um, firstly, the United States and all NATO countries uh, have admitted quite clearly that Ukraine cannot become a member of NATO in the sh- short to medium term, or even actually in the long term, as long as these unsolved conflicts 
with Russia remain. Uh, because, this is the second point, that would imply the United States and other NATO countries, but I don't think any other NATO countries would, sending to Ukraine a Cold War-style American army. Uh, you know, the kind of the troops that America had in Europe until the end of the Cold War, 100,000, 150,000 troops backed by a large part of the, the American Air Force. Now, nobody is considering that. In America, one absolutely key reason is, is of course, that that would gravely weaken America's stance against China, which the last three administrations have said is their priority. But also because NATO has been a shield for the expansion of anti-Russian you know, political economic agendas and American influence at the expense of Russia. But NATO has never been a fighting alliance. During the Cold War, of course, it never had to fight, thank God, or we'd all be dead, right? or never born, because it would have ended in nuclear war. Um, but of course, after the, the Cold War, um, on the rare occasions when NATO has tried to fight, its performance has been absolutely pathetic. No, pathetic. Uh, it's come down to the United States with British so ill-equipped, badly led British soldiers turning up in order to basically die gallantly. Now, if you're going to take Ukraine into NATO, that implies a willingness to fight, to fight the Russian army. Not, by the way, historically speaking, a very sensible thing to do. And so actually, the whole refusal to strike a deal, some, including myself, have suggested a treaty of neutrality like that of Austria during the Cold War. Others have suggested a moratorium on NATO membership for Ukraine for 10 or 20 years. None of these things would cost the West anything in, in real terms. Uh, it would cost, of course, in terms of prestige or credibility, to use that beloved Washington word, mm. because, you know, we have made all these half promises and statements that, of course, NATO could be maybe one day in some parallel universe a member of NATO. And now we can't bear to back away from that. Uh, but the Biden administration has begun to suggest certain compromises, which the Russian administration seems to think are worth pursuing. It has suggested, for example, mutual arms control limits. It suggested mutually verifiable uh, exclusion of cruise missiles from, from territories. It's uh, suggested the resumption of serious nuclear arms control talks. There have been vague allusions to a, a discussion of the wider security architecture in Europe, but we don't know whether what that means or what the Biden administration is thinking. But I think they have not totally turned down um, Russia's demands. There is still room for negotiation. And by the way, on the other side, you've had various hardliners, or not really hardliners, people almost seem to want war uh, in the West saying that, oh, you know, Putin's demands were pitched so high, you know, permanent exclusion, uh, exclusion of Ukraine from NATO, that he clearly wanted them to be rejected uh, so that that would be a pretext for invading Ukraine. Well, it's very striking that when, in fact, the Russian government did not do that and did not in, invade Ukraine, uh, of course, as usual, none of these people have come out and said, oh, sorry, I was wrong. It wasn't just a pretext. Actually, huh. you know, he, he did uh, want to, um, you know, want to use this as a, a basis for talks. Now, I wouldn't say that the threat of invasion has gone away by no means. But for the moment, at least, you know, the two sides are talking. Good to hear. So political yeah. explains that the just... United States maintains nearly 800 bases in more than 70 countries because of its military expansion, its influence of and membership in NATO. Some say the U.S. is beginning to look like an empire. So first, what do you say to those critics? Second, can the U.S. pull back some of its military bases, especially those close to Russia, without sacrificing the security of, of NATO or its allies? Well, the United States clearly isn't an empire like the Roman Empire or, or the British Empire, for that matter, or the French, you know, or the Russian, you know, which actually rules places directly through American officials. You, know, you don't have... Um, I lived in Qatar for seven years. You, know, you have a huge American air base there, but you don't have American officials, you know, residents running Qatar. And America could be compared to one of the great capitalist trade empires uh, of Asia from the 16th or late 15th to the 
the 19th century, where they didn't rule much territory, the Dutch and the Portuguese. They operated through a chain of naval bases and client states, you know, local principalities and kingdoms who uh, partly paid tribute and partly they supported those kingdoms against their local enemies, which of course the United States does all over the world. You know, the Poles are loyal to America because they feel America defends them against Russia. The Japanese are loyal to America because America defends them against China and so on. So it's it's an, what has been called an indirect empire, you know, an, in, an empire of bases of, of course, financial power and economic power and client states, not a, you know, not a direct empire. But, yep, still an empire. Oh, and sorry, okay. uh, when it comes to, um, to pulling back, look, when it comes to the basic well-being of ordinary American citizens, frankly, America could, you know, perfectly well withdraw from a great many parts of the world. So many of the places uh, where it's situated are either, or should be, the Europeans, uh, for example, entirely capable of providing for their own defence, given their wealth, especially if you put them all together. Or, of course, America is in a place where the the ambitions and hatreds and fears of its local allies actually risk dragging it into conflicts which are not in the interests of the United States at all. There's an element of that in Eastern Europe, but above all, of course, that's true of the Middle East, where you know you see the the Israelis, the Saudis, and their allies, you know, pursuing their own agendas uh, on the back of American power in ways that have nothing to do with the interests of ordinary Americans. But certainly, I mean, in Europe, um, Russia has no intention of attacking NATO members. Russia has nothing to gain from that. Russia has never threatened to do so. Russia has, I mean, risks nuclear war if it does that. It also loses any possibility of, of a good relationship with Europe. And of course, it ensures crippling economic sanctions. So I have a formula which says that um, NATO will never defend anywhere that Russia might actually attack. And Russia will never attack anywhere that NATO might actually defend. And of course, in the case of Ukraine, we, we've seen uh, in recent months, uh, the one thing that every NATO member, however hardline, has been absolutely clear about is that they have no intention of fighting to defend Ukraine. None. Zero. Zilch. So the United States could pull back and simply commit itself to the defense of uh, NATO. NATO in its existing form. It could commit itself to the defense of existing US allies in East Asia, the Japanese and the South Koreans. Of course, there's a big a big question mark over, over Taiwan. And I think America could pull back tremendously from its forward policy in the Middle East without, well, at least, you know, if it pursued a policy of seeking diplomatic compromise and agreement to the myriad, you know, conflicts and disputes in the region, rather than, you know, trying to pursue a mixture of American hegemony and the agendas of, you know, local American allies. I think that would be much better for America, for the Middle East itself, and for the world. So there also talk of economic sanctions. So Biden and U.S. NATO allies are also threatening to implement additional economic sanctions against Russia and possibly economic sanctions against Putin personally. Some believe that additional economic sanctions would cause Russia to turn to China for help. A strong coalition between China and Russia would certainly not be in the interest of the U.S. or its NATO allies. Sanctions that had previously been, however, imposed by the U.S. have caused much hardship for the Russian people. Some suggest lifting those sanctions in exchange for an agreement from Putin to pull back Russian troops from the Ukrainian border. What about offering Russia a carrot? Would Putin respond positively to such an offer, you think? Well, since Russia has said that it does not intend to invade Ukraine, I think the lifting of, and since, as you say, the sanctions have done uh, Russia considerable damage, um, I think uh, the answer is yes. Uh, of course, that would still leave the whole set of issues uh, unsolved. But certainly, you know, if this was accompanied by a serious effort to bring about a peace settlement in the Donbass and you know wider talks on arms control, I think the Russian government would view this as a considerable success. And yes, I, I believe it would accept. One of the problems that's often been remarked about US sanctions, uh, apart from, of course, the very, very obvious fact that they don't work, as they haven't worked with Cuba, they haven't worked with China, they haven't worked with North Korea, they haven't worked with Iran, and they haven't worked with Russia. But uh, another key problem, oh, and they didn't work with Iraq either in the um, 1990s. Yeah. Uh, another key problem is that once they're in place, 
because of course these these sanctions are implemented by congress you know they're passed generally in the form of congressional laws it, it turns out to be exceptionally difficult to remove them again especially of course if you have powerful lobbies even small ones lobbying for their continuation so the whole reason for us sanctions against cuba disappeared with the end of the cold war they're still there insanely because as every intelligent analyst i know has said you know if you actually want to <laughs> spread capitalism to cuba you spread american investment whether that be good for cuba well that's a question for another day but my fear is that you know if you impose sanctions you just won't will never be able to remove them again. And if you don't remove them, of course, then there is no incentive. As you say, you're left with sticks. And I think, as we've seen, Russia does not respond well to sticks, nor do most people, actually, sticks and insults. And if you can't offer some carrots to go along with it, well, you're not going to get anyone. Are there so other uh, carrots that might be uh, offered, you think? Well, one carrot, I mean, it's pretty vague, but, uh, and I don't think this is about Putin's personal prestige, it is you know, the desire of the Russian establishment that they be consulted about European security, that, you know, they they be included in discussions. And the Russians point out, you know, not without reason, that on a number of issues, if we had listened to them, about not invading Iraq, for example, well, you know, about not abandoning the nuclear deal with Iran, for example, uh, about not overthrowing the Libyan state, for example, you know, actually, everyone today would be much better off. And they've also said that, you know, if we could have um, consultations, then maybe they could warn us uh, about threats that they see coming, that they regard as, you know, an unnecessary source of conflict, like, for example, the, the Georgian attempt to recover their lost territories by force in 2008. And then we can head off crises, you know, between us. So for the Russians, just, you know, a return to a continuous process of genuine negotiations is a minor kind of carrot. But in the end, you know, if we're ever to get to even minimally, you know, consensual and friendly relations again, I'm afraid that, yes, I mean, NATO has to give up its eastern expansion at Russia's expense. By the way, I, um, you know, since um, Putin is in Beijing uh, at the moment for the um, for the Winter Olympics and to and to meet Xi Jinping, you asked a question about you know whether sanctions would drive Russia into the arms of China. Absolutely. I mean, to some extent, they already have. If, of course, extremely tough sanctions are introduced, if, for example, Europe has to do without Russian gas, then China will be you know, Russia's only major market. Now, the thing is, though, that that is an outcome that many Russians, including in the Russian establishment, really fear. Uh, not, they, they don't want to become simply a dependency of China. And they don't want to become an economic dependency of China, because then China will fix the, the price for the gas, and that will not be a price that is welcome to, to Russia. Uh, the other thing, of course, to note about sanctions is that America has minimal trade with Russia and does not depend at all on Russia for energy supplies. America is basically trying to punish Russia uh, at the expense of the Europeans, and above all the Germans. If anyone were in a position to do that in reverse, to tell Americans, yes, you know, you have to make really severe economic uh, sacrifices, and you you will see your energy bills go up very, very considerably as a result. You may even, you know, see, have to go back to rationing of energy. And Americans ask why, and they say, well, because we say that's the right thing to do. Something tells me there would be quite a political backlash in America. And the risk is that if, you know, if Russia launches a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, it may be different, because then there will undoubtedly be strong European support for some kind of hard economic pushback against this. But if, as a good many people in Congress, Ted Cruz's bill, you know, more explicitly, but the present Menendez bill, somewhat less so, if America tries to impose really harsh sanctions for a, a much smaller Russian action or form of pressure, uh, then I think that will cause very considerable anger in parts of Europe and uh, may not, in fact, go through. Because, 
as I say, it's not Americans are going to suffer, it's Europeans. Yeah. You know, there are those who claim that Putin is not trustworthy. Putin's history demonstrates that he's, he's not a blustery Nikita Khrushchev, or certainly not a Glasnost or Perestroika, as we know, with Gorbachev. But if Biden and the NATO allies make a deal with Putin, can, can he be trusted? I think it's a question. Given the American presidential elections recently, do you see the Putin threat as an effort to portray Biden as a weak leader and yet another influence to on a U.S. election, presidential election? How can he, how can all nations be held accountable in that, in that matter? But what is the way to ensure that Putin and, and all of us <laughs> follow through on our com- commitments here? Well, but you know, as you know, there is a much, much stronger charge in that regard against the United States. Um, yes. You know, it's the Iranians raise it again and again. How can you guarantee, given what happened to us under Trump, that you will actually, that America will keep to any treaty that it signs? Um, the Russians have much better reason to, to worry about that than Americans do. Because when people say that Putin is, is untrustworthy, well, Putin has never actually broken an international agreement, an international treaty. Well, I suppose you could say with regard to Ukraine, yes, but a treaty made with us. It has, in fact, almost always been the West that has pulled out of you know, agreements with, with Russia. The point is, I mean, if, if the Russian government does not get a Western offer that it thinks adequately meets its interests, it won't sign an agreement. If it does sign an agreement, it will be because it thinks it, you know, it has got a reasonable uh, amount out of it. And then I think the Russian government will keep that agreement. The question will be whether the, you know, if there's a, a, a Republican administration in 2024, whether it will keep that agreement. The situation between Russia and Ukraine appears as, as a hostage traffic currently because both countries are trying to compromise on a world stage. And whichever one backs down, they're going to look weak. Is it possible to conduct negotiations in secret, come to a resolution without divulging which side gave in or backed down? If not, how do we, how do the two sides solve the hostage trap? Will one side have to endure the appearance of weakness in order to peacefully resolve the Russian-Ukrainian conflict? Well, I think, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis really, really indicates the need uh, for negotiations to be held you know, behind closed doors. Uh, from that point of view, the leak of the NATO response uh, to um, the Russian demands was quite unfortunate. Of course, um, the Nixon-Kissinger opening to China in the 1970s, the initial stages were held not just in private, but in absolute secrecy, uh, precisely so that you would not get a, a tremendous backlash against this domestically in, in the United States. Because unfortunately, foreign policy has just become part of partisan domestic politics. By the way, I'm not just blaming the Republicans for this. The Democrats behaved in exactly the same way under Trump when, you know, Trump's alleged friendship with with Russia was grossly exaggerated. He didn't, in fact, do anything for for Putin or Russia. But this was turned, of course, into a tremendous domestic partisan cause. So yes, I think um, these talks have to be held strictly in in private. And I, I think, you know, as I've suggested, that there are formulae like a moratorium on NATO membership, like the arms control agreements that um, that the um, uh, the Biden administration has said that it's willing to explore, which um, would allow both sides to, to to go away without humiliation and feeling that you know they had achieved something uh, for their own interests, and you know above all, of course, avoided a a war which would be terrible for everybody except once again China, and of course above all, terrible for the Ukrainians themselves who be the principal sufferers. Now, I have to say, you know, the so often in these cases, the American official line is, oh, of course, you know, we, we cannot make agreements um, uh, without the Afghan government or the Ukrainian government, you know, the Afghan people, quote unquote, or the Ukrainian people, quote unquote, must have the final say. Well, <laughs> to be brutally honest, we saw how, what came of that in um in Afghanistan, you know, the Afghan state and political elites proved to be simply incapable uh, of making a deal with the Taliban. In, in the end, of course, the US just pulled out as it did from South Vietnam. But very often, uh, unfortunately, because of local political dynamics, because of power of local extremism, because of the weakness of governments, divisions in the political elites, uh, local states are in fact incapable of compromising. Uh, and by the way, I mean, once again, I mean, since Ukraine has lost Crimea definitively, 
and does not control the Donbass, uh, by doing a deal guaranteeing autonomy for the Donbass within Ukraine, which is the um, the basis of the, the Minsk II agreement uh, and the so-called Normandy format, which France is now trying to revive, Ukraine itself also does not sacrifice anything concrete. I mean, you know, it doesn't control these places as it is and frankly never will, because if it tries to reconquer them by force of arms, well, that would be the signal for a Russian invasion. But I, I think in this case, it really is necessary for the United States to decide what is in the best interests of peace, first and foremost. America, after all, these are American officials, not Ukrainians or Europeans, uh, and Europe, and then deal with the Russians accordingly. I mean, I think the French-German Normandy process does have an important role to play, uh, but that's because it's it's conducted, you know, by two, you know, uh, powerful and coherent states, which have a basically actually quite congruent approach to this issue. Trying to negotiate through the European Union or, or, or NATO is absolutely hopeless, because of course, with all their different members with different attitudes and different goals, they simply can't can't agree on anything. So <laughs> in the end, it comes down to, to Washington. I wish it weren't so, but it does. Well, Russia, like the United States, possesses a high-tech weapons of mass destruction. The Russian military possess high-tech fighter jets, gas bombers, sophisticated tanks, battleships, missiles, other high-tech weapons of mass destruction. Russia boasts of some 6,000 nuclear warheads, United States 5,000, Biden has already deployed 3,000 plus U.S. troops in Eastern Europe. An article published by Al Jazeera titled UK to offer major NATO deployment amid Ukraine crisis states that there are about 1,150 UK troops in the, U in the region at the moment. Boris Johnson is considering doubling the number of UK troops in Eastern Europe and sending defensive weapons to Estonia. The United States has already sent thousands of tons of military equipment and munitions to Ukraine. If an all-out war breaks out uh, between Russia and Ukraine for Ukraine and its NATO allies, the consequences will be devastating. But what's a war between Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia look like to you? Well, a, a war between Ukraine and Russia does not involve NATO directly, as I've said. You know, the United <laughs> States and NATO have made it clear they will not fight for Ukraine. So Russia would win in an all-out war because, you know, yes. Russia is three times as big, much richer, um, has far more tanks, infinitely more aircraft. These weapons for Ukraine, you know, can exert a higher cost, more casualties for the Russians, but it won't, they won't ultimately stop them. But um, the question, of course, is just how far would Russia mean to go? And although people have said, perhaps rightly, that saying this publicly was ill-advised of Biden, Biden saying there would be a big difference between a minor Russian incursion and a full-scale invasion is, is quite true. Um, because after all, minor uh, Russian incursions, you know, in the, in, in the Donbass on and off for um, seven years now. But that is totally different from a full-scale attempt to conquer half Ukraine. What could happen would be that the Russians would launch a minor operation in the Donbass and then, you know, basically say to the West, look, we've shown we're serious, right? So now can we talk seriously? You know, can, can you meet our, our demands? Uh, of course, the risk is if the West then imposed full-scale sanctions on Russia, Russia would have no, no, no incentive not to go much further. If it went much further, I believe the, the, the attempt would be uh, to occupy most of the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine in the east and south, uh, create a land bridge to Crimea, but then once again, not annex these territories, but negotiate, uh, say to, to the West, okay, we are willing to withdraw, but on the basis of Ukrainian neutrality and a federal Ukraine with guaranteed autonomy for all the Russian speaking areas. That I think would be the Russian position. Uh, Dr. Levy, let's change directions here a minute, because I know you've uh, pinned a book titled Climate Change and the Nation State, the Case of Nationalism in a Warming World. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your reference to nationalism has to do with patriotism, pride in one's country, loyalty to the state, or rather parsimonious perspective in terms of how one should view his or her country. That, that's correct? Well, I would say a commitment to the future of your country. And your society. Uh, by the way, I mean, you know, my, my vision of, of nationalism is entirely civic, uh, not ethnic, obviously. Ethnic nationalism is a nightmare. 
today. But I think that if you look at modern history, uh, nationalism has been one of the great inspirers of sacrifice, unfortunately, usually in the context of war. And, uh, you know, as has so often been said, a, a key problem for action against climate change is that we are asking the present generation to make sacrifices for future generations. Uh, and that is something I'm afraid that, our, you know, our societies of today are very, very bad at. Uh, we've seen that, alas, again and again. So focusing people's attention, uh, not just on the threat of climate change to the world in general and humanity in general, though it, it, it most certainly is a threat to humanity in general, uh, but perhaps uh, focusing people's attention on the threat uh, to the future of their own countries, the United States, China, India, Britain, uh, could be one way at least that is the argument of the book, of trying to motivate this sacrifice, which you know, we, we really do need to make for the sake of our countries and our own you know, future descendants. The other point I, I wanted to make in connection with that is that, and I say this you know, at the start of the book and throughout the book, that I am absolutely convinced that the historians, and remember I was trained as a historian myself, that the historians of 100 or 200 years from now, you know, if we fail sufficiently to limit climate change, they will think that in ignoring climate change for the sake of disputes and potential wars over eastern Ukraine and uninhabited reefs and sandbanks in the South China Sea, when the menace of climate change was looming over us, they will think we were insane, frankly. You know, they will, they will view us with a, a mixture of unbelief and deep contempt. And I'm afraid that, you know, that is exactly what we are doing. And incidentally, uh, the relative amounts of money that even the Biden administration is spending on the US military, you know, as opposed to action against climate change, is all too indicative of this, in my view, completely false priority. As far as, once again, not just humanity in general, but the specific vital interests of the United States. Yeah. So one further question, Dr. Levin. There's a long list of organizations. Cold Pink, Just Foreign Policy, Peace Action, Veterans for Peace, Madre, Progressive Democrats of America, American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accords, Pax Christie, uh, Fellowship of Reconciliation, some 100, 106 organizations, actually, organizations have put together a statement in this quote here as organizations representing millions of people in the United States, we call upon President Biden to end the U.S. role in escalating the extremely dangerous tensions with Russia over Ukraine. It is gravely irresponsible for the president to participate in brinkmanship between two nations that possess 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. For the United States and Russia, the only sane course of action now is a commitment to genuine diplomacy with serious negotiation, not military escalation, which could easily spiral out of control to the point of pushing the world to the precept of nuclear war. While both sides are to blame for causing this crisis, the roots are entangled in the failure of the U.S. government to live up to its promises made in 1990 by then-Secretary of State James Baker that NATO would, would expand not one, as you pointed out before, not one inch to the east, end quote. But since 1999, NATO has expanded to include numerous countries, including some of the some that border Russia, rather than dismissing out of hand the Russian government's current insistence on a written guarantee that Ukraine will not become part of NATO, the U.S. government should agree to a long-term moratorium on any NATO expansion, end quote. So as this statement points out, these organizations represent millions that are calling on President Biden to end U.S. role in escalating the tensions between Russia, Ukraine, and NATO. Yet, the mainland media has yet to mention any opposition to Biden's strategy for dealing with the Russian-Ukrainian crisis. Why is it NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN not covering stories that feature those who oppose President Biden's position on the Russian-Ukrainian crisis? Well, I, I mean, I, I belong to two, or is it three, organizations that signed that um uh, that appeal. probably more probably more the mainstream media has printed some people uh interviewed me um printed stephen walt for example peter beiner 
So we haven't been totally absent, but of course, in terms of balance, you're absolutely right. It's been overwhelmingly weight in support of either the administration or one version or another of a, a hard uh, American line. And I think the um, the reasons are that um, you know you, you have a, an American establishment which of course is also deeply bound up with the military-industrial complex and the huge economic interests involved in that, which are dedicated to what some would call American empire, what a more polite term is American primacy in the world. And this establishment does also dominate the, the, the mainstream media. <coughs> And they don't, you know, absolutely exclude um, dissenting voices, but they make damn sure that where the, the majority of their voices come from. Uh, Noam Chomsky, you know, described this, you know, very well in in his um, yeah. uh, in in his book Manufacturing Consent. And uh, incidentally, uh, you'd be surprised by the number of conservative dissidents uh, who would now, at least in private, agree completely with Chomsky on that. Chomsky has become a kind of bipartisan or multi-partisan hero for for all the foreign policy dissidents of the United States, which might have. Yeah, I would be surprised. <laughs> yeah, would have, I think it would surprise would have surprised him, but it's true. Uh, so yeah, I mean you have a you have the blob, as it has been called, and the blob is hugely powerful and hugely hugely rich. But also the the thing is that the U.S. policies of NATO expansion, but also you know the general pursuit of primacy, and s since the end of the Cold War, as I've said, were very much bipartisan policies. You know the Clinton administration initiated them. Bush, Obama, even you know Trump is in way, and now Biden have all all followed them. And so over the past um, quarter of a century or more, legions and legions of American journalists and people in think tanks have and academia have lined up publicly to support these policies. Changing these policies now would imply a recognition. Uh, that they were wrong. Nobody likes to admit they were wrong. If you're asking a whole damn establishment to admit that they were wrong, well, you know, you need something like Pearl Harbor to bring that up. You know Andrew Basevich, right? He, he was the, the chief um, of, of my institute, the Quincy Institute. Yes. Yes. So he, he's been on our program uh, as well. And you kind of brought this out, but his article, A Mournful Legacy, Ukraine and the Recovery of Moral Realism, end quote, refers to David Haberstam's book, The Best and the Wisest, mm -hmm. a book I know well, because Haberstam explains how the Ivy League advisors, McGregory Bundy, Dean Atkinson, Robert McNamara, George Kennan, you mentioned before, misjudged the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was not a monolithic threat, and Vietnam was not part of some domino theory threat. That misjudgment led to a loss of, quote, moral realism, end quote. The United States lost its moral compass. How do the lessons of Vietnam and the Cold War apply to the situation now with Russia and the Ukraine? Well, interestingly enough, I, I've just today written a, a piece pegged to, to this, I think now rightly famous exchange between Matt Lee of Associated Press uh, and uh, Ned Price of, of the State Department, in which Price simply expected the uh, US media to accept a State Department allegation or a US intelligence allegation without providing any actual evidence for this before, and then, of course, retreating behind the excuse of secrecy. Obviously, we can't release this. Now, I begin my article by reminding people of the famous statement by um, the then uh, CIA director, Richard Helms, um, in 1971. I paraphrase slightly, but I'm um, telling the newspaper editors of America, but you have to trust us. We are honourable men. And I pointed out that for years you know, after the Vietnam War, well, at least a few years, you had an, a majority of American journalists who were prepared, you know, not simply to take that kind of thing on trust, you know, to question the foreign and security establishment, to question its wisdom, to question its evidence, to question what they were telling people. But unfortunately, um, thereafter, that uh, all somehow largely faded away again. Of course, there were, uh, you know, uh, uh, exceptions like um, Matt Lee himself, you know, like Seymour Hirsch, uh, but all too many journalists fell back into 
the pattern which they'd really followed, um, you know, until halfway through the Vietnam War, of basically taking what the foreign and security establishment tells them on trust, not questioning it. And the, the remarks by um, the State Department uh, spokesman, I, I burst out laughing when I when I heard them because he, he was saying how you know how, how 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 can you question you know the the word of American and British intelligence about things? Well, you know that's a bit rich to put it mildly, you know, after what we know of, of how the Iraq war was sold, right, by British as well as yeah. American intelligence. Oh my, yes. you know, the 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 various by now proven lies thereafter. Af you know, the Afghanistan papers, so-called, and of course that title is modelled on um, the Pentagon papers released by um, Daniel Ellsberg during the Vietnam War. You know, the Afghanistan yeah. papers showing how, very like in Vietnam, you know, the American security establishment systematically lied about conditions in Afghanistan, uh, you know, for at least 15 years, with most of the um, the American media not challenging this. We need to get back to yeah, a real willingness of the media to challenge power, not just domestically, uh, but also in, in foreign and security policy, and not to be wooed into what amounts to self-censorship, you know, either by personal advantage, careerism, uh, or a, a belief that because America supposedly represents freedom and democracy in the world, therefore, in some sense, anything it does is good. Or, of course, simply a patriotic belief that you have to support, you know, American actions, uh, whatever they were. Uh, that is very much the spirit in which the first uh, American journalists, including Halberstam himself, by the way, uh, went to Vietnam. They learned better. We need to learn better. Let me ask one other question. I just we don't have to include this, but uh, there's an ideological uh, formula you describe as a democratic peace or concerted democracies that leads to something on which uh, both Democrats and Republicans agree. Of course, that's progress at least. But you imply that a problem as the democratic peace becomes seems to include or encompass the idea that. Uh, what you refer to as the global concert of democracies. What what is the concert of democracies you refer to, and what why is that a problem? Isn't it uh, an ideal for all governments to become or become a democracy? Well, you know, as I say, I used to be a historian. I still am, I suppose, at heart. Uh, countries do not have um, the same social and economic systems. Le least of all, do they have the same social and economic systems at the same time? Uh, and, you know, in our own countries, certainly in Europe, I think, you know, for America, it's a bit different because as has often been said, you know, America has an exceptional history from that point of view. That is, unless you do happen to have been black or Native American. But, you know, in Europe, if you try to introduce full-scale democracy in the Middle Ages, the result would, of course, have been a catastrophe. I mean, apart from anything else, like in the Philippines and Pakistan and various other parts of the world, large parts of Africa, what you would have got was not democracy, but, um, you know, the, the, the rule of feudal bosses or tribal chieftains, you know, behind the mask of democracy. Uh, so that's the one thing. The second thing is, uh, it's becoming a bit difficult these days to know just what is a democracy and what isn't, because, of course, of the rise, uh, of so many people have said, of illiberal democracies, elected governments, um, like that of India, like that of Poland, uh, but of course, who behave in many ways once elected uh, as authoritarian governments and certainly operate on the basis of intense ethnic or ethno-religious chauvinism. So um, the the idea of you know a really benevolent world of democracies is really only confined to I would say still uh, Western Europe, parts of Central Europe, a couple of countries in East Asia. Uh, and North America. Elsewhere, you know, things look very complicated um, and confused. And also, uh, you know, once again, as the old joke goes, ask me in 200 years time. Um, we, we, you know, history is a long business. We don't know how the future will judge, you know, the relative merits of, of democracy and authoritarianism. Much will depend on how well relatively we, we respond to climate change. I, I think historians of the future, if there are any, uh, will judge, you know, our political systems above all on that. Did they respond successfully to the threat of climate change? And I have to say there, 
it is an unhappy truth that three of the, the countries in the world, which relative to their per capita income, have done the worst in that regard, are three Anglo-Saxon democracies, America, Australia, and Canada. They, on the basis of their record to date, are not going to be well judged by the historians of the future. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Anatole Levin. We are out of time, folks. We want to say thank you again to our guest. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Levin, for giving us so many alternatives to uh, violence and uh, solutions that we all need to consider. We also want to thank you, our radio listeners. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., Wednesdays at 6 a.m., the Solutions to Violence program featuring Anatole Levin will air again February 8th at 8 a.m., February 9th at 8, 6 a.m. This program featuring Dr. Levin will be placed in our archives February 9th. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Dr. Levin. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion today, you can reach us with the following email, solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. Jim Johnson and I are your hosts for Solutions to Violence with technical engineer and moral support and editor Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thank you for joining us and have a good day. <laughs>